You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We've just talked about, I believe in this series, and we've talked about, I believe that life is more than survival. I believe that the heart is more than a muscle. I believe in hope and freedom. I believe my life can make a difference. And today, I believe it's no accident that we'll be talking about, I believe the message of the cross, the message of the cross. And we have all have those times where we just feel like life is out of control, right? You hear bad news this week. And you begin to think, well, how can that be? And what is going on? And how can that happen? You begin to think, is God, where are you? God, have you lost control? Like, are you aware of what's going on down here and the people that we need in our lives and what happens around us? And we get scared and we begin to react back at God out of fear. Perhaps maybe for you, it's that you've lost control, you've lost dignity, or everything in your life seems out of control. And it might be politics for you. And you look at it and you go, they just lost control. For others of you, you may look and you may say, hey, it's your health diagnosis. And you think like that's just out of control or you're in a relationship where you realize I cannot control that other person. Then you finally realize I should not probably try to control that other person, right? It just seems like out of control. But the more that things seem out of control, the more we try to control because we're fearful and we want security. Maybe it's loss of your employment status, or maybe your family just on the way here today, you freaked out in the car. And the fact that you got here today was just great because you just said, I've absolutely lost control. It is easy to be in situations where we think that we've lost control. And maybe if we've lost control, then maybe God has lost control. And today, more than almost any other day, we need to be reminded that even in unforeseen circumstances and situations for which we're totally unprepared for, that God is in control, that God knows exactly what he's doing, that God will walk you and I through whatever we may face. See, when there's nothing redeemable in our circumstances, we question everything. And what happens is this, control is driven by fear. And fear at its core is the loss of security. So if I think I'm losing my secure footing, my secure standing, my security with people or relationships, then we try to run after it and control it so we won't lose what we're fearful of losing. At the core of fear is a loss of security. So the real issue is, How can I be assured that God is in control when so much around me seems out of control? That's the real question. We want assurance that God knows what he's doing, that he's in control. I mean, after all, didn't it seem like Jesus lost control of all the events that surrounded his end of his life and his arrest and his death and his crucifixion? Or did he? And today we're going to let the scripture itself be put to the test to say, did in fact Jesus lose control of the events surrounding his arrest and death and crucifixion and resurrection? Or was he exactly on point to be in control of everything that went around and happened? I want you to look at the events of Jesus's betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection through an entirely new lens. And I want you to look at the text, to let the text speak for itself, to inspect if Jesus lost control of the events leading to his death. And here's why you and I need this sermon. If Jesus was in control of the events surrounding his death, then I can trust him to be in control of the events surrounding my life, even when you don't understand them. So let's look and see if, in fact, 
Jesus lost control. I believe today we're going to look at a number of proofs that Jesus was absolutely in control of the events surrounding his death. And on your outline, number one is this. Jesus told Judas when to go betray him. So Judas, one of the 12, has agreed to betray Jesus, but he's looking for the opportune time. Judas is looking for the right moment to betray Jesus. And they're having basically the Lord's Supper, communion, which we'll actually celebrate later today. They didn't know it was communion. They just thought it was the Passover meal. But they're in this meal, and we find this scripture in John 13, 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. So Judas gets up in the middle of the very first communion service. He only takes the bread and he leaves. And I think that's important. He only takes the bread. Why? What does the bread deal with? Jesus's body. But he never engages with the cup. Forgiveness is through the blood, the shed blood of Christ. So Judas, is, his whole agenda is the body. I'm going to betray the body of Jesus and reject him in that way. And so he's dismissed. Jesus tells him when to go betray him. He was absolutely in control of that moment. Second, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. So there's all these people. Jesus now tells his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, who is it? Who is it at the supper? And then Peter steps up and goes, I will never betray you. I will never deny you. I will love you. I'll be with you through thick and thin. Everybody else might flee and leave, but I won't. And he speaks very vocally and boldly to Jesus. And in Mark 14, 30, Jesus says to Peter, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. So late Thursday night until dawn Friday morning, Three times, Peter denies knowing Christ. And the third time he denies knowing Christ, Jesus and him make eye contact across a courtyard. And Jesus looks at him and he knows he's betrayed Jesus. And Peter says that he ran away and he wept. Because he who made these bold claims didn't fulfill them. And there are times that you and I tell Jesus, I will never leave you. I'll be with you through thick and thin. And I am with you till the end. And then this moment happens when we question everything that we know. And you begin to question your allegiance to the Lord. And sometimes you deny him. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus circled back with Peter to restore him. He knows our weakness. He knows that there will be times that even you and I question God's goodness, that even you and I will walk through legitimate doubts, that even you and I will question in the face of tough circumstances whether we can put our allegiance with this God when we don't understand the big picture. And he will circle back and he restored Peter, not just to being a disciple, he restored Peter not only to that, but to be the very guy who preached the first sermon following the arrival of the Holy Spirit in which 3,000 people were saved. There was an amazingly fast turnaround. And some of you have denied Christ in different ways. And you think, I will never get back, or it's going to take me a long, long, long time to get back to Jesus. If you believe that, then you just need to look at Peter and his life. Watch how quickly Jesus restores him to being a legitimate disciple whose life can make an amazing difference and so can yours. Third, Jesus submitted his human desires to the divine mission. The divine mission was this, 
that God loved people so much, but people were separated from God by sin. And so Jesus, God the Father says, I will send a portion of myself. I will send Jesus, the God-man, the only one who ever existed, born of God and born of the virgin. And he will live a perfect life and do so without sin. And he will be the only righteous sacrifice that we could pour all the wrath of God against him for our sin. And he will take the punishment. And in turn, he will trade to us his righteousness for all of our filth. It's such an unfair trade. But that was the agenda of God. That's what God wanted to do. And so Jesus is, has come to earth. He's lived his life. He has lived without sin. He was tempted in every way as you and I are, but he was without sin. And in this moment, he is questioning in his humanity. He's saying, I don't want to go through it. I don't want to be beat, spit upon, mocked, whipped, scourged. I don't want them to put a robe on me and let the, my blood coagulate to it and then pull it back off. I don't want to be crucified on a cross in front of everybody. And so in the garden, Jesus, taking time alone with God the Father, submits his human desires to God's divine mission. In Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, going a little farther, speaking of Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And here's what he's saying. People, if you're newer to the scriptures, you don't know what cup he's talking about. What is this cup that he's talking about? What he's talking about is drinking the cup. It's the cup of suffering that he knows he's about to have to go through this, this series of suffering in order to accomplish God's work regarding our sin. And in his humanity, he's saying, I don't want to do it. He's saying, literally, if there's any other way to get the mission done, except for me having to go through this and suffer and be crucified and die, then let's do that. And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And so often you and I are sitting there in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow, and we say, God, is there, if there's any other way, we negotiate, right? God, if there's any other way to accomplish it. But ultimately, we keep coming back to God not what I can see and not what I can perceive and not what I can understand and, and not what I think I can handle, but God, what you want to do in and through my life, even when it makes no sense, even when it's painful. Next, Jesus said Yahweh, which means I am, and the soldiers fell down. Now, Yahweh is spelled Y-H-W-H, -H, uh, but we spell it out a little bit in English. We do Y-A-H-W-E-H, -H, Yahweh. And what that is, that's the personal name of God. When Moses asked Almighty God, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me to you? God gave Moses in that moment his personal name. So it wasn't just God. He wasn't just out there. He wasn't just, you know, whatever, the most high. He gave him his personal name, and he said, my personal name is I am. Like, end of story. I am. I've always been. I always will be. I am. There's nothing more that needs to be said. That's what he told 
Moses to tell Pharaoh when he sent Moses to Pharaoh to let his people go. And so what do we find out? In John chapter 18, verse 4, Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, by the way, these are soldiers who've come to arrest him, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, he replied. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And here's the picture. These are soldiers and people coming to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. Judas has led them to where he knew that they would be. And so they come out, and these are soldiers. They're in the ready. I mean, if you've served in a police force or in military, you know what it's like to surround the people you're going to try to arrest. You know what it's like to be in a ready position. They're not just standing there holding their spear, just waiting for, you know, Jesus to willingly comply. They think there's probably going to be a battle. And so they're in the ready position. And they ask Jesus, they ask Jesus, they come there, and they're like, where's Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? And he just says, I am. And these guys in the ready position, they didn't just like fall down like, oh, I stumbled on a rock. They fly backwards. They land on the ground. They find themselves there because of the spoken word of Jesus. These are guys in the ready position, and they go flying backwards. Let me tell you, if you wonder where the big bang came from, that'll give you a little glimpse. The spoken word of Jesus, and all of a sudden they're on their backs on the ground. And then I love it because I think Jesus has a sense of humor. They get back up, they dress themselves up. He goes, who is it you're looking for? <laughs> like, you want round two? We can do round two. Jesus shows his authority and his power. Yahweh, the personal name of God. People who say, by the way, that Jesus never claimed to be God don't understand the scriptures. They don't understand even the language to understand what Jesus just said. Let me tell you, there was no question in the mind of the priests and the soldiers who came to arrest him that Jesus just declared that he was God. And they fell to the ground uncontrollably because of it. Number five, Jesus secured freedom for his disciples. In John, 8, 18, or in John 18, verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. And if you're looking for me, then let these men go. And this happened so the word he had spoken would be fulfilled. Here's the quote. It's an Old Testament pro uh, prophecy regarding Christ. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So imagine this moment. Jesus is trying to let the disciples go. He's trying to say, you've come to arrest me. Let's establish that you arrest me. And then the rest of these guys can go. But what happens? Peter jumps in. He draws his sword. He goes to hack the guy's heads off. He probably dodged. He saw it coming. He just whacks the guy's ear off. And in that moment, like, at that moment, like, the soldiers are sitting there, and they got their swords out, and they're going to be like, well, now we got to arrest Bolt. we got to arrest him and him. And probably the rest of you guys, right? Because you now have assaulted a person who came to arrest you. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He stoops down, he picks up the ear that had gotten chopped off. He puts it back on Malchus's head and is instantly healed. Jesus removes the evidence of assault. Jesus secures freedom for his disciples. You've just come to arrest me. Nothing's happened here. If you think otherwise, prove it. The guy's still rubbing his ear, but you know. 
He just secured freedom for his disciples to fulfill what the Old Testament scriptures have said. And, you know, Peter's probably thinking, well, man, you knocked them down. At least I could pull up my sword and get in on the action, right? But Jesus literally heals the guy's ear and removes the evidence that would have required Peter's arrest. Number six, Jesus spoke to Pilate the reply which would ensure his ultimate sacrifice. So what happens to Jesus? He's arrested in the garden and over the course of the next 12 hours, he is tried in two different trials illegally. He's tried in the Jewish courts. He's tried in the Roman courts and in both trials. And we've looked at this before, that he is, there's corruption in both, that there are abuses to the court system of both really developed courts. And Jesus gets arrested, and it's the point where Pontius Pilate is trying to free Jesus. He's trying again and again to say, this guy has done nothing wrong. Let him go. And he's trying again and again, and Jesus nudges him. What do you mean? Jesus gives him the reply that ensures that he's going to be crucified. He didn't have to. Jesus could have freed himself at any moment. But in John 19, verse 12, Jesus is talking to Pilate. said, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And they're saying Jesus is claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate, that moment, it's a very famous moment, he goes and he washes his hands in a basin of water and basically just says, listen, the blood of Jesus is on you and not on me. I've tried everything I can to free this man, but now it's apart from me and he allows Jesus to be crucified. Number seven, God controlled the very words on the sign. It's a king of the Jews. Remember the... Uh, the Pharisees had said, this man claimed to be king of the Jews. The, their whole point is he, we don't think he's king of the Jews, but he's made that claim. And because he's made that claim, he should die. It's a very weak claim on their behalf. But that's what they're arguing before a Gentile court that doesn't care. Because just got to remember, Roman people think Caesar is God. So, you know, if Jesus were to claim to be God, that's no different than what they're like. Hey, we believe a human's God. What's the big deal? I don't understand. But in this moment, God's going to even be in control of ordinary human action to accomplish his divine plan. In John 19, verse 19, you need to understand that condemned criminals would always have a placard on their uh, when they're being crucified stating what their crime was. So that anybody who walked by would look and go, I don't want to do that. Ooh, I probably shouldn't do that either. And that other guy over there, I probably shouldn't do that. And there was always a sign saying what they were condemned for. And so Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Isn't it interesting that God even controls the fact that Jesus, though being wrongly tried while being crucified, there is no false claim 
against him. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the king of the Jews in the line of David. He is the everlasting king. If that were not true, then he would have something he'd stand condemned for. But it's absolutely true, and the chief priest could do nothing to change it. Number eight, darkness happened from noon to 3 p.m., and the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, opening the Holy of Holies. Luke 23, verse 44, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, you need to understand something. That when Jesus gets crucified, it's now noon and the the sun stops shining. The scriptures describe darkness, not overcast. They describe dark, not overcast. They're like the sun stopped working. So they're there in the middle of the day. Jesus being crucified, he's already been on the cross for about three hours. And all of a sudden the sun goes out. It's dark in the middle of the day. And during that time, there's an earthquake during that time. The temple veil is torn in two. And you say, what is the temple veil? Well, in the Jewish temple, there were outer courts where people could be, Jews and Gentiles. There were inner courts only Jews could be. There were courts where they did sacrifices. There was outer rooms where certain priests could do their duties. But way in the back of the temples where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. And between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant is where the Spirit of God dwelled among people. And that was closed off by a massive curtain over four inches thick. And it was woven with materials like gold and other things in it. Well, that veil was hanging and would always keep people from going in there. In fact, there's only one person who could go in there. And this one person could only go in there once a year. And it was the chief priest. He would go in with a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And he could only do it on the Day of Atonement once a year. In fact, it was so serious that they put bells on him and they tied a rope to his ankle Because when we went behind that curtain, if something happened to him, no one could go back there and get him. They would die too. So they tied a rope to his ankle and they'd hear little jingle bells. They would just know, hey, he's still living. The guy's moving around in there. He's doing his priestly stuff. And so we we know that, you know, because no one's going in there to check on the guy. And he could only go in there once a year. The moment of Jesus' death, the sacrifice on the cross, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Please understand, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. It was as high as this room, and it was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying that the final sacrifice had been made for your sin and mine, not animals and their blood anymore, but in the blood of Jesus. And you and I have access to God the Father directly. We don't have to go through a pastor. You don't have to go through another person. You don't have to do any magical stuff. But that the God who created you and loves you hears you when you cry out to him, especially when your life is out of control. And Jesus, though the event seemed out of control, was completely controlling all that went on. Listen, the failure of the sun to shine in the middle of the day just pictures creation gone awry. Creation is simply reflecting that the creator has been crucified. And it's so wrong at its very core that nature reflects it. Number nine, Jesus entrusted his mom to John the disciple. So Jesus is on the cross, but he looks down and he sees his disciple John, and he sees his mother Mary, and he says this in John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, 
Here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Why is it written in that way? Well, because John's writing the book, and he's being modest. It's him. He took her into his home as his mother. Number 10, Jesus decided when to give up his spirit. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. See, they crucified him, but Jesus controlled the moment at which he gave up his spirit. See, a lot of them didn't have that choice. The two thieves on Jesus' side, they, they still suffered on the cross. They were still going. In fact, they didn't get the choice of when to give up their spirit because the chief priests and others wanted these bodies down before the Sabbath. And so they said, by sunset, these guys got to be all down off the cross. And if you're alive too long, what happens is this. You're, you're slowly suffocating on a cross. And you have to push up with your legs. That you, By the way, have a nail drilled through both your feet. And you have to push up in order to exhale. And then you, you compress in and you slowly suffocate. That's why crucifixion is such a torturous form of death because it's an extended death. What happened is Jesus decides the moment he finally gives up his spirit. The two thieves on either side are still alive. So basically the Roman soldiers come by with a baseball bat and break their legs. And then the inevitable happens. You just smother. But Jesus, fulfilling the scripture, saying that not one of his bones would be broken, says his body will be crushed, but not one of his bones will be broken. He fulfills the scripture. He gives up the moment where he gives up his spirit. And so roughly 3 p.m., Jesus died. Number 11, Jesus rose from the dead. Many appearances, including over 500 witnesses, happened at a single time. Early historical writers and contemporaries, including Josephus, said this, that the opponents, all they had to do to disprove the resurrection was to produce the body of Jesus. And scholars who study the evidence of the resurrection agree that it happened. They might say, we don't know how it happened. We don't know why it happened. But because of the historical, authentic writings at the time for the contemporaries and with years for people to disprove it who couldn't, and with all the evidence we have now, good historical scientists look back and say, it happened. We don't get it. We don't understand how it happened. But all we know is that Jesus, in fact, historically rose from the dead. And God is sovereign. Initially, believe me, it was all viewed as hopeless. It all seemed like all the good in Jesus came to a screeching halt. Here he is being crucified on a cross and his disciples, where are we to go? What are we to do now? But that was not the case. But let me ask, we're not very different, are we? We say, God, we won't deny you, but then we have moments where we question we say, God, does it seem like all the good you had going on just suddenly came to a screeching halt? God, what are you doing? And in a crazy turn of events, sometimes you and I grab the stone and we trigger the stone of unbelief. And because of fear and because of security, we try to roll this stone back over the open tomb of Jesus and say, my life's out of control, so certainly you are not God. My life's out of control, so I can't trust you. My life's out of control, so I'm not sure. And you roll back this stone of unbelief because you're afraid and you've kind of crossed your fingers and hope that someday when you too die, you will somehow make it into whatever's next. 
And Jesus is saying, I died on the cross. I did all this intentionally. I was fully in control of everything, including rising from the dead, so that someday when you die and you put your faith and trust in me, you too will rise, and you will be in the presence of God and with him forever with pleasures at his right hand in a place the Bible calls heaven full of his joy and peace. See, control is driven by fear, and fear's core is a loss of security. So some of us have to be honest about the stone of disbelief we've rolled over the open tomb. Listen, just because you rolled it in from the tomb doesn't put Jesus back in it. He's alive, and he loves you, and he went through that for you and for me because we couldn't wash our sin away. We couldn't get rid of it. We couldn't be good enough to save ourselves, and we too will all die someday. And Jesus loves us enough. Listen, he stretched out his hands, taking our pain and our condemnation. Jesus conquered death and offers us the assurance of life beyond earthly life. And we're inevitably, we're going to lose this earthly life. But we gain freedom when we give up control to the one who can speak his name and soldiers fall down. When we give up control to the one who can turn the sun dark and turn it back on again, to the one who can offer forgiveness for your worst moments and my worst moments, to the one who can offer heaven beyond the chaos we experience in this world, to the one who can roll the stone away, to the one who rose from the dead, that's the one to whom we can entrust our lives. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just for a moment, thinking about your own life, I want you to be honest in this moment to say, have I ever given faith to what Jesus did on the cross? Have I ever put belief in the fact that he died, he rose, but he did it for me? And one of the beautiful things that God does is he reveals us to ourselves. And then we understand our need for him. And so what happens is, as we look at his death, his resurrection, his rightness, we realize where we fall short. And we have the choice, even in a moment like this, to give our lives to him. And the way we do that is by prayer. And you might just simply pray something like this. If today you would like to have the forgiveness of your sins, you'd like to give faith to what Jesus did on the cross, you pray something like this right where you're seated. You pray it silently or in your heart. God hears you. But just say something like this. Say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross, that you were buried that you rose to new life. Today, I believe the message of the cross. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin and wash me as white as snow. Make me a new creation on the inside because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.